Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. We welcome you all to Bible study here this Sunday morning. Uh, welcome, first of all, all those who are here in person with us in our gymnasium. We welcome all who are listening in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM. And we welcome all those who might be listening online today, KFUO.org. Welcome to all of you as we continue our study of First, Second, and Third John. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for this day, and especially for all the blessings that you will grant later to us. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for his life and death and resurrection once again, and for the forgiveness and everlasting light we have through him. And we thank you for the privilege of sharing that good news with all whom we encounter. Bless our study this day, sending your Holy Spirit to work through your word in our hearts and minds. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As I mentioned, we're uh, continuing the study. We started last week on 1 John. Uh, I'm going to go back and uh, review a little bit some of the things that uh, Pastor Wade did in the way of introduction, maybe add a little bit to that. And then we're going to jump to chapter 2, since he did chapter 1 last week. There are sheets over uh, next to the Bibles on the bleachers there. If you would like to grab one, uh, that would be helpful for those who are here and following along. So first of all, just uh, again, reiterating some things and maybe adding a few things in terms of the background for First John. Obviously, the author is the apostle, the evangelist John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved as he describes himself in his own gospel. Uh, it seems uh, that of all the disciples, he and Jesus had a particularly uh, close relationship. Uh, It's kind of interesting in the upper room when uh, Jesus starts making some statements about somebody betraying him and so on, and the other disciples weren't quite uh, gathering what was going on. They kind of turn to John and say, hey, you know, in effect, find out what he's talking about. And John, we think, was right next to Jesus when they were reclining at table. So he seemed to have a a close personal relationship uh, with Jesus. The recipients uh, are uh, actually uh, household churches throughout Asia Minor. And you'll see a reference there in parentheses, Shuckard, page 20. Uh, this is not a commercial, but I, would, I really like very, very much the Concordia commentary that is available on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It is authored by one of our own members, uh, Reverend Dr. Bruce Shuckard, who is a professor at Concordia Seminary here in town. It's really good, and even just picking it up and reading it without even having necessarily any direct study connected with it. So I quote quite a bit from him on this page. So that's, if you see Shuckert, that's what I'm referring to, is that commentary in the Concordia Commentary series available from Concordia Publishing House. So there are house churches in Asia Minor, and you remember that from the cross, Jesus told uh, John, in effect, to take care of Mary. From that time on, remember saying to Mary, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. And the tradition has it that John did exactly that. And they settled in Ephesus, as we'll see here in just a moment. And he finished out his days there during that time, was interrupted by being exiled to Patmos. But at any rate, uh, cared for Mary in Ephesus. You go to Ephesus today, uh, they'll want to show you a house that they just claim is the house where John took care of Mary. And uh, I've always said, don't bet the farm on that. Uh, It was somewhere in that area, but it most certainly was not that house. In fact, when we went, we skipped it all together because it's just not, it's just not the house. So at any rate, but anyway, he did care for her somewhere there in Ephesus and kind of made Ephesus his base of operation, if you want to say that and ministered to all the house churches that are in that area, in Asia Minor. Now, what was the problem that he was addressing? There were some people who used to be in the church, in the Christian church, who had left, and they were pulled away, enticed by false teaching, and separated themselves from the remaining Christians. And it seems like they were having quite a pull, quite an influence on those who were still in the church. And so John is writing to those Christians in those house churches to keep them from going astray. 
because these are people who still would have had friendships within the church there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're quite influential and we're gaining some sway with the people who were still left. And so we're going to read this a little bit later on. They were called the secessionists because they seceded from the church. They separated from the Christians. And take a look there on the sheet. We'll get to this a little bit later <clears throat> coming up. But notice how John mentions this. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They, and here's the, referring to the secessionists who pulled out. Notice he says there, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all, that all are not of us. So they were together. They weren't of them in the, in the sense that apparently they didn't stick to the, the faith. They didn't stick to the true teaching and pulled out. And so this is one verse that really hits this. Uh, the fact that they is the they that went out and are no longer with them. Um, that which deceived the secessionists was threatening to deceive others. So 1 John 2.26 there. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And again, that's those who left the church and are trying to have, their, uh, have others uh, follow them out of the Christian church with, with errors. Now, what were the errors? Uh, and this again comes from Shucker. And when you, when you see this, you can understand why John writes what he does in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Their secessionist errors are both Christological, so dealing with Christ and his teaching, and ethical. First of all, a denial of Jesus coming in the flesh. So they denied that Jesus actually came in humanity. And the world at that time, there was a popular philosophy at that time that said that God is up here and flesh is down here and there the two meet. The old, the old expression is the finite or that which is limited, the flesh cannot contain the infinite or divine. And so they denied that Christ actually came in the flesh. Now, that's a huge problem, isn't it? If he didn't come in the flesh, he, as Paul says that in Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to do what? To redeem those under the law. And that would be a denial, if, if they're teaching this, a denial of his humanity and a denial of taking our place as a human being as well. So that was very serious. Uh, they then, a refusal to acknowledge the dilemma of sin, they would say that, well, sin doesn't matter because we're going to be purified anyway, so don't worry about sin. I would think that, that again, is a huge problem, is it not? And then thirdly, a failure to demonstrate brotherly love. And when you see wall to wall in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John talking about love, that's why. He's writing against these false teachers who denied Jesus came in the flesh, who did not have any problem uh, dealing with sin, they just ignored it, and thirdly, failed to show love to others. And so now, when you read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you wonder, why is he harping on those things time and time again? It's because he's trying to, to fortify the Christians that are left so that they're not deceived and led into this false teaching as well. So the purpose, uh, first of all, is the letter is to reinforce the faith and life of its readers against the threat of the deceiving influences of forces from without. So again, the Christians who stayed are being deceived by those who left. They're now on the outside, and John is writing to fortify them, to give them the, the strength. Okay? So timetable, and again, this varies. Uh, you, you'll see scholars um, kind of earlier and especially later, uh, or especially earlier rather than this. 
But we think John arrives in Ephesus in about 66 to 70 AD. He resides there while teaching not only in Ephesus, but in other cities in the surrounding area. Again, Ephesus was kind of his, his base of operation, but he had, he had sway all the way through Asia Minor. And you know, he at this point is the last living apostle. He's the last one uh, of those 12. The rest have been, have been unfortunately martyred uh, because of their Christian faith, and he alone remains. He will be the only one who will not be martyred for his faith. However, he's going to be exiled to a barren island called Patmos. So he arrives there 66 or 67 in Asia Minor. Second bullet point, he is exiled to Patmos by the Roman Emperor Domitian until about A.D. 96. And this is where it gets a little sketchy. We don't know for sure. On Patmos, he receives and writes Revelation. You can go to Patmos today. And uh, they have a, a place you go down all these steps, and tradition has it that this is where John received revelation. Well, that may or may not be. We know it was on the island of Patmos. Whether it was in this exact spot or not uh, is is up for grabs, I think. There's a beautiful uh, church there as well on the island of Patmos uh, even today. So after returning to Ephesus from Patmos, John, the last of the living apostles, writes the letters today known today as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to a broad Christian audience of Jewish and Gentile worshiping communities throughout Asia Minor. At the close of the first century AD, he has served as the elder father of the house churches of Asia Minor for decades. The faithful children of the many elect sisters, which is the way he describes churches, of the region have been and still are his children. But his exile under Domitian Resulting, resulted in an extended time without the stabilizing influence of the region's elder father has taken its toll on the children. False teaching has persuaded some to abandon the faith and the life of the community of the beloved. At least one local community's leader, Diotrephes, is in Third John, we'll see him, has presumed to advance his own teaching at the expense of the apostles' instruction, and he is refusing to listen to and or expel from the community any who call his actions into question, okay? So again, John is away on Patmos. We don't know exactly how long, but while he's away, right, there's, there's all this false teaching that's taking place, and he's not there to extinguish it and to guide them and to keep them instructed in the correct, uh, correct biblical doctrine, the apostolic teachings. Now, he has to, when he comes back, he has to try to correct all this not only in Ephesus, but in the surrounding areas, okay? And so that's what we see in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, we'll get to more of this later, but I just wanted to say the three epistles, that's what I've got written down here. 1st John, we believe, is exactly that. It is an epistle to not only those in Ephesus, but all around the surrounding area. 2nd John, many believe, is a cover letter for 1st John. You know, I mean, you send a document along, you'll sometimes send a cover letter to kind of explain what it is. And when we get to Second John, we'll show you why we believe it might be that, at least Chuckert and a lot of others do. And then Third John appears to be a more private, personal letter from John to this guy named Gaius, G-A-I-U-S. It's addressed to him. And so we'll get, when we get to Third John, we'll talk about that as well, okay? So I wanted to give you just uh, some other things and, and again, uh, review some of what uh, Pastor Wade said last week and maybe add a little bit to that, okay? Any questions or comments before we move on? We'll go to chapter two now. All right, let's do that. Let's go to chapter two. And I know you hit the first one or two verses last week of chapter two, but we'll go back and get a running start. Okay, so he starts off, my little children. Now, he's not obviously writing here the children, <laughs> to, uh, you know, to uh, young children, you can just see here the, the elder statesman, John, the apostle, and he, he thinks of these people, the Christian church there, as his children. You can, it's it's a, an expression of affection for them, uh, speaks of them and thinks of them uh, as his own children. And so it's a beautiful, 
way to begin the chapter. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, based on what we said before about these secessionists not being worried about sin or concerned about sin in their lives at all, look at the way he starts off chapter 2. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, don't think that sin doesn't matter. I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. Now, is that... Is it realistic to think that we are not going to sin? Obviously not, right? Uh, there was way back, I guess it was around the early around the early 1900s, I think it was, there was a movement in this country that was called the Christian Perfectionist Movement. And it actually taught, they were actually, these were Christians who actually taught that it was possible to reach a point in your life where you no longer would sin here on this earth. And what's, what's the first thing, if you buy into that, what's the first thing that's going to happen when you sin? Oh, and then, and then who do you think gets the blame for that if you sin? You do, right? And you would think to yourself, you know, I guess I just don't have a strong enough faith. I better try a little harder. I better read the Bible a little more. I better pray a little harder. And it almost turns itself into a form of works righteousness in and of itself, doesn't it? Because it's not based upon what God has done for me. It's what I better do so I can be a better Christian. And uh, obviously that had devastating effect on, on some people's lives who, who kind of bought that line that, that somehow we can be perfect here on this earth. That is simply not the case. As Lutherans, let's, let's review what we believe. We are at the same time what and what? Saints and sinners, right. We are saints in the eyes of God, not because of anything we have done, but because of what God has done, right? It, through his son, Jesus Christ, and all of what Christ earned for us, given to us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, is given to us. On the other hand, we unfortunately know that we sin daily, don't we? As we say in thought, word, and deed, by things that we do, by things that we don't do, and so on, as we confess in our, in our confession uh, on Sunday mornings. And so, unfortunately, that is our sort of dual identity here on this earth. Now, how do we feel about sin? Is sin an important part of our life that we take seriously? Absolutely. Remember how Paul, Paul starts, remember Paul starts Romans 6 this way. Should we sin all the more then so that grace may abound? In other words, should we just keep sinning more and more and give God more and more chance to forgive us? No. <laughs> very next words, absolutely not. You know, the, the very next words are a, a very prohibitive, absolutely not. That's not the way we view the Christian life. We, with the help of God, try to battle sin every day, don't we? We don't just think it's unimportant in our life and say, oh, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. What's there to worry about here? What's the big deal? No, we do take it seriously because we know God takes it seriously. And uh, so we each and every day make the use of our baptism, of repenting of our sins and receiving that full and free forgiveness from God as Nothing that we deserve, but again, through his grace, okay? So Paul is saying here, you know, he writes to them so that they may not sin. And finally, um, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now that word advocate, maybe some of you have heard this word before. Have any of you heard the word paraclete before, heard of that word? It's a Greek, it's actually a Greek word. And it means somebody, it's like your, it's like somebody who is called to your side. It even has a legal implication, sort of like a defense attorney who stands by your side, 
and pleads your case before the judge. And in this case, we have Jesus Christ, who is our advocate with the Father. And uh, I'm reminded, we won't, won't read it now, but uh, I'm reminded in, in Romans 8, verse 34, Paul talks there about Jesus at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So it wasn't enough that he dies for us here. It wasn't enough that he rises again. He is, even at this point, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, advocating for us. And so his work for us even still goes on to this day. So if we do sin, Paul, or, uh, John says, we have this advocate, we have this paraclete, this one who is called to our side with the Father. And notice there, it is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who is righteous, the one who is without sin, is there advocating for us. So verse 2 then, he is the, oh, here comes a big word, propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is, we get this, uh, there's a few verses that have it translated this way in the uh, New Testament. But it is the atoning sacrifice. It means to, to make an, an atonement or a sacrifice. And Jesus, of course, is that. It carries with it the idea of averting God's wrath. And that's exactly what happened with Christ, isn't it? He took the wrath of God for our sin on the cross in our place. And we don't want to forget that. You know, if you want to see how serious God is about sin, take a look at the cross and what happened there. Not only the physical torment of Christ, which is significant, but especially also the spiritual torment of when he abandons his own son on the cross and his own, and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's that spiritual torment that he went through, again, in our place. And so that's why he is called the propitiation for our sin. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Is there anything else that needs to be done to take care of our sin? He did it all. He did it all on the cross. He endured it all. He was, I guess you could say he was the, like the lightning rod, right? For God's wrath against sin. And he endured it all for us. Okay. All right, going on. Uh, and, and notice there, and not, so he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So it's not only, and uh, let me just say, there is a, a belief out there that we completely disagree with. It is a Calvinist belief. It is a Reformed belief. It is called a limited atonement. Have you ever heard of that before? It says, basically, it's a belief that Christ died, not for all people, but only for those who would eventually believe. The five-point Calvinist is a, the acronym is TULIP, and the L is limited atonement that he only died for those who would eventually believe. And here is one verse that completely contradicts this, that he died, notice he's the, he is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice, not, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Everybody, all sin, all evil, he died and made the payment. Why aren't all people saved then? They reject God's offer, free offer of salvation by grace through faith. It's not because there isn't enough atonement to go around. It's all, it's, it's done completely. God has, in Christ, uh, reconciled the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. The tank is full. The only problem is people are rejecting God's offer of salvation. Here's yet another verse that, uh, and if you just even think of John 3, 16, right? For God so loved, what, well, whom? The people who would eventually believe in him? The world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Okay, so uh, he's, he's telling them there that, you know, if you do sin, you know, don't, don't 
panic. Don't you know, go and jump off a cliff. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and for those of the whole world. Going on. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. So now he's going to say, how do we really know that we know God? <laughs> how do we really, are we sure we know God? If we keep his commandments. So people who know God keep his commandments. Remember the secessionists, what were they saying? Not important. Sin's not important. And John says here, this is how we know him. We keep his commandments. Now, we as Lutherans, I think, I'll just give my opinion, disagree. Uh, many times, I think we're very reluctant to talk about, you know, the law for us now as we are Christians. Let me ask you this. Does the law still play a role in our lives as Christians? Yes, absolutely. First of all, we still need to be convicted of our sins, don't we? Yeah, we still sin daily. And sermons, should we believe, contain both law and gospel. It's not that I, I don't need the law anymore, as long as I'm still sinning, right? But then there is what has been traditionally called the third use of the law. And that is we call the Christian use of the law. And so when I am a Christian now, and I think to myself, you know, I want to live a God-pleasing life, where do I go to find out what's pleasing to God? The word and, and the law within that word, right? And I find out that even though I may think something is okay, God doesn't. And this is how we know him, that we keep not our commandments, but his commandments, right? We don't go around thinking, well, I know it says this, but, you know, I think this. I mean, that is so, so arrogant, isn't it? That here's what the word of God says, but I think this. Well, there are some things that, you know, a lot of people today, I think, uh, feel are just fine. There's no problem. The only problem is the Word of God speaks against that and pretty clearly. And so this is how we know that we know God, that we keep his commandments or his instructions is another way of, of translating that word. Whoever says, I know him, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Liar. You're not really speaking the truth. You're lying. Now again, think of the secessionists. He's calling the secessionists what? Liars. Claiming they know God, but not worried about sin in their lives. I want him a liar. They're not speaking the truth if they say they know him, and they're not even concerned the least about keeping his commandments. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps, or that word can be translated, embraces his word. In him, truly, the love of God is perfected, or we might say completed, made complete, uh, made to its final end there. So it's, it's, we embrace the word of God. Notice there, we don't just, oh, I, guess I, gotta, I guess I gotta look at the word of God now. We embrace that word. We want to read that word. We want to hear and be taught that word, okay? And he, he says there uh, that the love of God is perfected or made complete in him. By this we may know that we are in him. Notice the relational talk there. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, is John saying there you've got to look at the way Christ took steps on this earth and seek to, seek to take steps the same way? What does he mean by walking? Yeah, lifestyle, living that way, okay? That we, uh, we have an expression in, uh, in English, I think, is, I think it's still around, isn't it? That we walk the... Yeah, walk the walk or walk the talk, I think is another, another one that's out there. In other words, we don't just say something, we actually walk it or live it, right? We live that way. And so, again, he is pointing out to them the uh, contradiction 
between what is coming out of their mouth, these secessionists, that, oh, I know him, and I, I'm in him, and so on, and the way they're living, not caring one bit about, uh, about sin and its impact on themselves and others. And so um, I was trying to find, I didn't find this, but Paul, I forget where this is exactly, maybe somebody should tell me, uh, there's a, the verse where Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right, right. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, who certainly walked the walk, right? Or walked the talk, whichever one, whichever one uh, you're thinking of, okay? 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1. thank you, thank you. And um, so it is not arrogant for Paul, is it, to say, be an imitator of me, because what he's really saying is what? Be an imitator of Christ. By extension, be an imitator of Christ, right? And so we think about, if we're going to walk the walk of Christ, what are some things that ought to be evident in our lives? If we're going to walk that walk of Christ, be imitators of Christ, what are some things that ought to be evident in our lives from day to day? Love, joy, peace, forgiveness. Yeah, so many things that should be evident in our lives, right? And when we talk about love, it is a sacrificial kind of love, isn't it? It's one that puts the needs and the, the uh, uh, problems of others above our own, right? And a sense of peace that comes regardless of what's going on around us, right, in our lives. There is that sense of calm or confidence in the heart that is not based upon what is or isn't happening around us in our lives with the details of our lives. And um, what kind of people did Jesus associate with? Sinners, tax collectors, you know, in fact, the Pharisees were always on him that he's associating with all the wrong kinds of people, right? And they, instead of the, the elites uh, of, the, of the day. And so, you know, just think about that uh, from time to time, you know, uh, reflecting on your own life. In what ways in my life am I walking the walk of Christ from a daily basis. And again, of course, we're not going to be able to do this perfectly. Not, not by a long shot, unfortunately. But thinking about, you know, my, maybe my relationships with some other people around me, or uh, how could I do better at walking the way Christ walks? Uh, maybe even with some family members. Could I do better at that than I am right now, right? So whoever claims he knows him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, according to John, right? Okay, And we repent of that, obviously. We repent of that. But it, it is, it, this book, I think, has a lot of opportunities for us to reflect on our own lives and not think, okay, he's just writing to those people back in Asia Minor back at that time who were having this problem with the secessionists. But we can think about our own lives. And in this case, how do our lives reflect a walk with Christ and a walk in Christ? And maybe how are there ways that we can improve on that or ask God for help with that? Okay. Now, going on, the so-called new commandment, which is an old commandment, but then a commandment that Christ makes new. Let's go on. Verse 7. Beloved, notice how he begins again. This, this tells us, by the way, he's starting a new section here. He starts off beloved. So he started the last section by saying, my little children. Now again, notice again that, that phrase of, that term of esteem and love for them. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have read. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. And so this new commandment we're going to see is that we love one another. And that was actually given way back in the Old Testament. The great command given to God's people is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So this is nothing new. 
It was given way back in the Old Testament, but now in Christ, he says, it implies here anyway, that what was an old commandment has now been made new and has been revolutionized, we might say, through Christ, with the coming of Christ and with what Christ has done. So he says there, uh, I'm, I'm writing to you no new commandment, right? So it's not novel, it's, some, it's not something new, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. In other words, you've been instructed in this, this is nothing new. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. So again, in Christ, this is all new, which is true in him, in Christ, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, let's go back for a little bit. Remember, we said that the secessionists uh, felt that there was no need to show what for somebody else? Love for somebody else. And so John is going back now and saying, even taking it to the other extreme now, that whoever says he hates his brother is in darkness, living in the darkness of sin and evil, we might say. That's where John usually uses the the distinction between light and darkness, light being in God, darkness being in sin. And it's interesting that he says here in, uh, let's see, in verse 8, that the darkness is passing away. In other words, it's getting more and more light. And we think this is a reference to the time that was started with Christ, the light of the world coming here, and continues as we are getting closer and closer to the last day when the light will return, Christ will return. And so it's kind of interesting here. He's kind of saying, you know, the darkness is passing away in light of the fact that these are the end times, we might say. Um, and, you know, with one, uh, one of the things we don't maybe stress as much as we should is whenever Christ does a miracle, let's say he gives sight to the blind or hearing to the deaf, it is just a glimpse of what is going to be on the last day, isn't it? When all, all people, all uh, creatures are made new, are raised new. And it's just sort of a, a, a small beginning of that process that will have its culmination on the last day, okay? And so the, the darkness is passing away. Um, the idea of, of loving someone versus, as he says here, hating someone. Let's stop and just think about this as Christians for a moment here. Why is it important for us to show love to somebody else? The secessionists were saying, eh, not important at all. Don't worry about it. Don't go out of your way. Why is it important for us as God's children to show love, not only to brothers and sisters in Christ, but to those even outside of the church? Why would we say that's, that's, a, that's a priority? Okay, it's evidence, isn't it, of Christ living in us. It's a, an outward manifestation, you might say, of Christ living in us. Excellent. Any other thoughts? Yes, Lance. Right. Yes. It's, uh, John's going to say, we love because he first loved us. Right? So again, it's this, this outward uh, I might say, result of God's love for us in Christ in particular. And what impact could this have on others as they see love operating in and through us? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a witness, isn't it? In fact, the, uh, I wish I'd look this up before I start down this path, but there is a uh, Roman soldier, might be Pliny, I'm not sure, who wrote to an emperor 
This was around uh, the 100s uh, AD. And one of his comments, he was reporting to the emperor on the Christians. And one of his comments was, behold how they love one another. That's what Christians in the early years were known for it, in, the, in the pagan world amongst the Romans, but how they loved one another. And we would say it's not just loving one another, but it's loving beyond our walls also. It's loving, it's loving others that God has placed in our lives who are not so-called members of the church, right? And so he is saying here, you know, that whoever is in hating his brother is in darkness. And of course, the opposite, whoever has, has loved his brother is in him, is in the light, okay? All right, starting at verse 12, we're going to see a bunch of parallel construction here, uh, and it's an effective way. By the way, you know, these letters were, uh, were actually designed or written to be read out loud. They would be not so much, you know, we, they didn't have uh, printing presses and uh, photocopiers to uh, make copies of these and send them around to all the people. They would actually gather, and these would be read out loud. So think of, when we hit these next verses, think of the dramatic uh, rhetorical effect that this would have. It's almost like a drum beating uh, going on and on and on. And let me give you just a little bit of this. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men. You kind of get that? Get that rhythm that he's got going there? And so as these would be read out loud, it's a very effective, uh, as I say, rhetorical way. Uh, sometimes you'll hear even pastors today uh, will repeat uh, uh, something, and they'll start at the beginning of the sentence the same way, repeatedly. It's an it's a effective device uh, for remembering things. So notice there, I'm writing to you to the suburb little children. Again, we're not thinking he's writing just to little children. This, again, is John's way. As the elder father, you might say, of all these believers, it's his way of writing to them and addressing them. It's the way he thinks of them. Because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, Bud can confirm for me, I think, that in, the, in this phrase, forgiven is actually before your sins. Forgiven. Oh, you look it up. <laughs> and it's done that way for emphasis that the word forgiven comes first. Forgiven are your sins, and it is left behind. They, they are left behind, in other words, okay? Um, and notice there, it's in Christ, for his name's sake, for Christ's name's sake. And the other thing I wanted to say, I don't want to get too deep in, in uh, Greek here, but these are all a tense of a verb called a perfect tense, which means it's an action that was done in the past but it still carries on its effect today. So forgiven were your sins, and they're still forgiven today. And so let me ask you this. Where were our sins forgiven? Where was the one time that was done, and it still carries on today? For most of us, I think, in this room, baptism, right? Where our sins were forgiven, and it's the, that goes on today. So we think of our being made right with God, not as a process that goes on, but as something that happened instantly at our baptism. What's the danger if we didn't think of that that way? What's the danger if we thought that my being made right with God is a lifelong process that I have to try to, to achieve and, and make sure happens? What would be the problem with that? Yeah, exactly. Could I ever, would I ever do enough, right? And of course, the answer is no, if it's up to us, right? And so there's a danger of thinking that way, that life is a whole process of making myself right with God. And no, you've been made right with God in your baptism, and that still continues today. Now, living the Christian life, as we were talking about before, and uh, we call sometimes our life of sanctification, we would say, yes, that is an ongoing process, isn't it? That I try daily to uh, resist the devil in all his works and all his ways, as we say in our baptismal service, right? 
And that, that is a process that goes on and on and on. But I do that as one who has already been made right with God. That's, that's the big difference. And that's a very dangerous thought that I'm going to try my whole life to make myself right with God. That's just a, a wrong-headed uh, thinking. All right? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. So the comment was, when were my sins forgiven? And that is a correct response as well at the cross. That's when they were paid for. But then that was, was given, made mine, you might say. God made that mine in my baptism, right? Yes. Yes. It is through faith that we are saved. So you might say the moment I first believed, right? Which for most of us, probably I think in this room, was, was at our baptism. And there are others. Yeah, yeah, there are others who, who were called to faith through the word prior and then were baptized. Right, right. Okay? So anyway, the point is, it's an instantaneous thing. It's not something I try to work out the rest of my years uh, here on this earth. Okay, going on, um, I'm writing to you fathers. Now we think he is writing to those who are fathers. There are some who think, was well, he writing to the heads of the house churches? No, we think that at least Shuckert is, is thinking these are actual fathers, those who have children, both young and old, um, because you know him. And again, this is that same perfect tense. There are six of them in a row here. And so they, they came to know him at one time, and they still know him today, from, who is from the beginning. So who is from the beginning? We know who is from the beginning. Jesus. Well, God, yes, but Jesus as well, right? In the beginning, in John 1, 1, in the beginning is, was the Word. And then we're thinking about who is this Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And actually, in the Greek, it's God was the Word for emphasis. And then we finally get down to verse 14, and we find out John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And then we know, okay, we're talking about Christ here. That is the Word who became incarnate or who became flesh. And so you've known him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men. And we think here he's talking about those who are no longer adolescents, but maybe are very young adults, not yet married apparently, because you have overcome the evil one. And again, this overcoming is been done at one time, effect continues today. You've overcome the one who is evil. Then back to the whole group again, I write to you children because you know the Father. And again, it's a one-time act with continuing uh, 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 effect today. And I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And again, that is Jesus I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides or remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, the only way we overcome the evil one is through Jesus. Yeah, that's the only way we overcome the evil one, the way the devil is uh, referred to by John right here. Okay? All right, let me stop there for a moment. Any questions or comments? We're going to do just one little section here, and then we'll be done for today talking about the world. Done? Yes. Yes. Yeah, there was, uh, the question was, why, if, if he was exiled, why was that allowed to end, and why was he allowed to come back and not just stay on Patmos? A new emperor came in. There was a new sheriff in town, and he brought him, he brought him back, allowed him to come back. Good question. Any other questions? Yes. Yes, we believe he wrote Revelation first, then these, and then the gospel. We says the line Shukar takes. You can find scholars out there that will think differently, but I, I think the majority will go with what Shukar is, is uh, saying here. Okay? Any others? All right, one little section here, and then we'll be done, about... Um, the world. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, John is using the idea of world here in a negative way, the negative connotation, right? Uh, do not love the world 
or the things of this, of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, does this mean we should uh, not enjoy anything in life? Just go around with our heads down, frown on our face? No, that's not what he's saying here. Loving the world or being engrossed with the world and the things of the world, um, it, it all, you could almost say he's almost bordering on idolatry here, you know, the way he's speaking about this. Loving the things of this world. You know, Paul will, will say, you know, keep your mind on things that are above, right? Not things here on this earth. And you think about how sometimes people live their lives as if this is it right here. This is all there's going to be. And John is trying to guard them from thinking that way, okay? And so this loving of the world, the Father is not him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. So there we go. There's, there's what he means when he talks about the world. The desires of the flesh, or that sinful nature, and the desire of the eyes, what comes through our eyes, right? And we find desirous, and pride of life. Pride of life. And um, you think about the way, again, some people, if you were to ask them, you know, what's most important in your life, and they think about it for a little bit, well, I think it was that trophy I got back. And, you know, and as if, again, the, the idea of the, the earthly pride, the earthly arrogance almost, and again, John is trying to have them guard against that, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And here's the other thing, and the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So that's, again, as the result of a faith in Jesus Christ. So again, it's a tension between, or a, a kind of a butting up heads here between having our focus on this world and so engrossed with and in love with the things of this world versus the fact that this world is passing away. It's on its way out. And there's a wonderful new, new heaven and new earth that God will bring with Christ on the last day. So have your focus there. I just want to close by, I was hoping we were going to get to this. I found again, this is in this commentary. Believe me, I don't get any kickback for sales of this commentary. So uh, <laughs> I keep quoting from it. But there was a guy who wrote something here, a guy named uh, Rensberger. And I thought, boy, you just can't say it any better than this. And I just want to read this. I hate to read a long section to you. But I just read this and I thought, that says it perfectly in talking about this section. So just let me read this. The self-centered desire that comes not from the Father makes us friends with the world, which in this sense means friends only of ourselves. We want what we want. This slogan is used to sell us cars, clothes, food, and appliances. It works very well, too because the culture of the quote-unquote developed nations today has no sense of anything that ought to restrain or oppose personal and corporate desire. I want it is considered an automatic justification for anything we acquire, sometimes dressed up as I deserve it, which may or may not be true. Hence, we have an entire industry, television, that exists for no other reason than to increase the desire of the eyes, quoting from John again. Jesus teaching that you cannot serve God and mammon, Matthew 6, 24, is likely to be met with a blank stare from those who have never heard that there is any God but mammon. Speaking the Christian message of self-giving rather than self-enhancement, of love rather than desire, of God rather than ourselves, has become like whistling into a very loud wind, a hurricane of advertising, entertainment, and political marketing. Who will hear it? How, how can we shout it loudly enough? We get some unwanted help from ecological disasters, which suggests that the created world will not bear what human world wants to load into it. But in the end, the message can best be promoted by putting it into action in our own lives, which is what John is calling for. I just thought that was so well-spoken, so well-said. And you think, again, of the influences that are on us each and every day. As he points out, just turn on the television set, and you'll have, you know, advertisement after advertisement focusing us on ourselves, right? Our own wants, our own desires. 
And uh, now I'm not saying that all television is bad. There is, there's certainly some very good uses, but he's pointing out how the culture has turned us in on ourselves for the most part and our wants, our desires, and uh, turn, not having us consider at all that this world is passing away. Kind of interesting at the end there, he says, every once in a while there's an ecological disaster that, that reminds people that, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe this world is passing away uh, and, and so on. But so again, something for us to think about. As I said before, how about our lives and our focus in life, our, our priorities in life, I guess you could say as well. And um, obviously your priority uh, is with God because you are here and you are in his word. But, you know, you think about a lot of people's priorities in life and how they are shaped by the world and by what they see around them and what comes into their lives. Okay. All right. We got to stop there time-wise. So let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all.